What it is, what it is. How y'all doing? I always say what's up. I thought I'd mix it up a bit this morning. What's up? There we go. That feels better. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hope y'all doing good. It's good to see you. Uh, good to see you too, Matt. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, I really do. It's good to be here. Everybody excited about Christmas? I heard, it, I heard at least as many groans as I heard affirmative <laughs> responses to that. I feel the same way, but uh, it'll be over before we know it, folks. Amen. <laughs> Best thing about the holidays is getting through them. That sounds terrible. It's not true. I love the time with family. I love all that stuff, and uh, I love the festivities, and that's all I'll say in a positive sense there, but uh, no, I really do. I brought two, two Bibles today. That means twice the preaching. You get twice the sermon. Uh, no jokes aside, uh, talking about all the sickness going around, I got it. And so that's why I didn't shake hands with you. It's not because I'm mad at you. I am mad at you, but that's not why I didn't shake hands. <clears throat> but uh, trying to avoid spreading it around. Started coming down with something Wednesday, and it has just gotten progressively worse, and then a little better, and then worse again. And so that's fun. And, uh, but don't fear, okay? I checked on WebMD. And uh, I've either got um, bronchitis or lung cancer, so (laughs) somewhere in between those two, uh, based on my symptoms, and uh, according to WebMD, that's where I stand this morning. But anyway, I'm taking lots of medicine, I'm I'm, I'm hopped up on a lot of dope is what I'm trying to say, so if I say anything stupid, it's not my fault, it's the medicine talking, and uh, that gives me a disclaimer for later. Okay, I warned you. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. So you know we just wrapped up. I think we spent uh, three Sundays in chapter 2, possibly four. I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but uh, we're now transitioning into chapter 3. Um, and so I'll have to cover a, a certain measure of ground today in chapter 3. And then we won't pick it up for a couple of weeks because y'all know I have to preach a Christmas sermon next Sunday. Otherwise, I'll get hate mail. So tried that once. It didn't work out well. But uh, so anyway, but jokes aside, I do have a different message. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be preaching next Sunday. So we'll deviate from our, our study of 1 Corinthians for one Sunday. But that means I got to get through a certain part today and uh, not leave you hanging. I know y'all hate cliffhangers, right? So look at me in chapter three, <clears throat> excuse me, verse number one. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? That's a very interesting statement. Verse 4, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Verse number 11, notice this. 
He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we're going to stop right there for now and build on the theme that we, that we set in chapter 2. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today, and Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. Lord, your word expresses how sacred our time is on this earth, and I count it a privilege that, that every person in this room has, has given their time to be here today because we understand that we need something more than what the world has to offer. Father, we surrender our hearts before you, and Lord, we ask that you would work in us during this moment. Father, I pray that you'd speak to every heart. I realize how limited my ability is to preach and to teach your word, and so I pray that your spirit would take the word spoken and that you would deliver it to every single heart purposefully, intentionally as they have need today. Help us to listen carefully. Help us to avoid distractions, God. Help us to put everything out of our mind for just a little while that would keep us from hearing everything that you have to say to us. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme or the title of of our study in chapter number two was simply this. And I asked a question. I said, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Uh, this concept will serve as an introduction to chapter number three. And just in the question, uh, the implied question is that we all have our own predisposed ideas pertaining to the nature of God, right? Y'all here for that study for the most part? So we all have our own preconceived, predisposed ideas. In other words, when we, when we hear certain things, we hear it and we, we view it uh, theologically or biblically through the lens uh, in which we see God. However we understand God, however we view God, uh, we tend to sort of filter everything through that, that, that lens or that viewpoint. And, and, and I want to keep clarifying this because I don't want this to sound like God's nature is, is fluid. God's nature is not fluid. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He explains himself, describes himself to us in his word as the chief cornerstone, as the unmovable rock. And, and so we understand that God's nature doesn't change, but that does not mean we all understand God the same way. Does that make sense? And so it's important for us to understand this, and and I I tried to get you to understand it for yourself, but it's also important to understand because we have to understand the actions and behaviors of other Christians, right? People act and behave in a certain way. And, and in this particular context, within, within, the, within the, the arena of the New Testament church or within the, the family of God, as it were, people tend to behave themselves based on the way that they view God. And so uh, 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 there are a lot, and I'm going to say something that, that could be very shocking, so brace yourself. We don't have seatbelts, but if we did, I'd say buckle up because this is going to shock some of you. But, but a vast majority of people who profess to know Christ are very off-putting in their behavior. I know, I know, I know. There's going to be a lot of difficult things to, to, to palette throughout this little segment. But, but the truth of the matter is there are people who claim to know Jesus that are a very poor representation of him. And so it's important that, that we understand how people view God, not just for ourselves, but so that we can maybe even on a, better, on a better scale really deal with other believers, deal with other people who, who claim to know Christ as their Savior, right? 
I mean, honestly, according to some Christians, all you ever hear is how much God hates everything. Right? How much God's against that. God don't like that. You shouldn't be doing that. That's bad. God don't like it. Right? All these church curmudgeons walking around like God's ordained them to be the high sheriff of all, of all things holy. You know? You've met them. You've met them. They think it's their job to point out every problem in your life because they don't have any, no doubt. Yeah? Jesus said it this way. I think it's one of the, the most, I think it's one of the most descriptive and hilarious word depictions ever given by Christ himself. He said, uh, he said, why do you notice the little fleck of dust in your brother's eye when you have a beam sticking out of your own? You get that imagery? He said, why are you so concerned about all the little details? And in the question, he does also give us the answer, the reason why people behave that way and the reason why other people, so-called Christian people, nitpick other people is because they're presenting a smokescreen to distract you from all their own failures and frailties. You guys have to hang with me today. I'm only here because I love you. I feel like laying in bed watching The Office or something right now. All right, so, so hang with me, help me preach a little bit. The point is, there are people who claim to know Christ who do not behave themselves accordingly. And so we have to understand this, and we have to actually come to a point where we can accept it, and instead of being so put off by those people, understand that we need to be in prayer for them. Because a person with that attitude views God as being more concerned about a person's behavior than he is their heart. We, we make this assumption that God is more concerned with the actions and behaviors of humanity than he is with the heart of humanity. Legalistic people think that, that the key to rectifying bad behavior is the enforcement of more rules and standards. But the truth is, you cannot write enough rules to make people righteous. If, however, we can fix the brokenness inside of a person's heart then proper behavior will follow. We're, 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 we're so bad about trying to get the cart before the horse, you have to fix the, the essence of the problem before ever you will see a manifestation of any sort of healing. You've got to heal the heart. Now think about this. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, y'all familiar with that one? Most famous sermon ever preached. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sat down and he began with what is known as the Beatitudes. You familiar with that? The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived because Jesus is not only the son of God, he's also the son of man who took upon himself the form of flesh. So the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher, the greatest prophet, God manifest in the flesh, begins with what we now have come to dearingly title the Beatitudes. Now think about this. They're called the Beatitudes, not the Beduitudes, <laughs> right? I can make up words. It's part of my job. <laughs> they're, they're, called the, they're called the Beatitudes. You know why? Because God knows something we don't know. God created us as human beings, not human doings. So think about, think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's why you should be merciful, by the way, because you need a lot of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessings come when the heart is aligned with the Holy Spirit of God. And so attitude is vital to our aptitude. You might say it this way. (laughs) It's the only cute little part of the sermon. You ready? Attitude determines aptitude. Aptitude determines your altitude. You'll never excel beyond the level of your own internal disposition. And so the reason why, in the greatest sermon ever preached by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he he talked about the internal position of our heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? And so attitude determines aptitude. Aptitude determines altitude. Now think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. Notice with me. Paul said, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, we talk about understanding and the importance of understanding. We talk about chapter 2 talks, speaks much about wisdom, about the importance of having the wisdom of God, about the, the fact that we attain or we have obtained, rather, through Christ, the ability to know the mind of God. Remember we talked about last week, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Could be very frustrating until you come to the, to, to the conclusion that Jesus would operate in love, first and foremost. And so when we think about the fact that we've been given the mind of Christ, the ability to, in, in any given scenario, know how we ought to function and how we ought to operate, we come to chapter 2, verse number 14, where he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. A person in their natural state, what we would call the unconverted state, someone who has not come to know Christ as their Savior, The natural man, that type of person, does not understand, cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. In fact, they are foolishness to him. Neither does he possess the capability to know them because those things are spiritually discerned. There are some things that you have to learn through the Holy Spirit. There are some things that we can't understand by by book knowledge, certain things that we can't learn in a classroom. No doubt we have the textbook. But you have to know the author to fully comprehend and understand on a cellular level what God is saying to us. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The term natural man, again, is referring to a person in his or her unconverted state. Now, last Sunday, we looked briefly at John chapter number 3, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, by the way, was a religious person. Nicodemus was a teacher. He was a leader uh, in the Jewish community. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man whom everybody else would have deemed a good person, a righteous man, Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, I don't care how much law you know, I don't care how well you feel like you're obeying the law of God, I don't care how righteous you think you are in and of yourself, your righteousness when it comes to inheriting eternal life is like filthy rags in the sight of God. And so every human being upon the face of the earth has to have a moment when they're born again, when we are born into the family of God by the Spirit of God. And so the technical term for this is the word regeneration. 
The word regeneration is only used twice in the Bible. Uh, but I'm going I'm to share with you the most articulate usage for this context to help us understand what we're dealing with in chapter 3. Notice Titus chapter 3 and verse number 3. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But, here's the difference. This is when life changed. But when the kindness And the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of, what's that word? Are you paying attention this morning, guys? By the washing of, do we need to put bigger font on the screen? Can y'all not see that? (laughs) By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, so we learn a lot of things from this one little passage. We learn, first of all, that God didn't save you because he saw something in you that was greater than your neighbor. God didn't save us because he saw something in us that was more appealing than, you know, the, the rest of the off-scouring in society. You know, those people. He didn't save us because we're any better. He didn't save us because there's something in us of of higher value than any other human being. He saved us, the Bible says, by his grace. Now, you remember we talked about how in the cross we see the, 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 the nature of God is revealed in the cross, the core nature of who God is. The Bible tells us that God is love. So when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, we understand that greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, right? So the greatest thing we understand and can comprehend about the nature of God is that God is love, that God not only performs and displays love, but he himself is the essence, he's the epitome, he's the embodiment of love. So in the cross, we see the innate nature of God. He is love, and on the cross of Jesus Christ, the love of God was poured out to humanity. And then we also see in the cross our intrinsic value. That God loves us, that, that, that his love is not just some sort of hypothetical concept that's floating around in, in the universe or beneath the firmament, whatever your view is. <coughs> Any flat earthers out there? Don't raise your hand. Don't, don't raise your hand. We don't want to identify that level this morning. But the point being that on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God loves us so much that he was willing to die for us rather than live without us. And so, so the greatest thing you can know about how the God of all creation sees you is that he sees you through eyes of mercy, that God is not up in heaven looking down on you in rage and wrath and anger, hoping one day to throw you into a fiery pit so that you can fall and burn and writhe forever, but rather With a heart of love, he's longing to pour out his goodness and pour out his grace and pour out his mercy in your life so that you can be reconciled, that you can be brought back into relationship with the one who designed you and made you for purpose, on purpose. And so in the cross, we see God's intrinsic nature. In the cross, we see our intrinsic value, and we understand that it was not by our own works of righteousness that God showed us favor, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so then what happened? 
when he saved us, wherever that took place, whatever that moment is in your life when you were born again into the family of God. It might have been in a church service. It might have been on the side of the road somewhere. It might have been in a, in, in a camp meeting or a revival meeting. It could have been in your living room. I got saved in my dad's living room all by myself. There wasn't a preacher, wasn't a choir, wasn't an altar worker there, just me and the Holy Spirit. And God dealt with my heart and showed me I was lost and I got saved. So wherever that happened for you, wherever that moment, that aha moment, that recollection moment where you understood that you needed God, that you were lost and undone, and you needed a Savior, wherever that happened, when that happened, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, again, we complicate this subject, but let me, let me just simplify it for you. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of God in the world. Just as Jesus was physically with his disciples during his earthly pilgrimage, the Holy Spirit is with us. He gave the promise that he would send another comforter. In the Greek, that's the church, those are the words, alos parakletos. That means one like the other. Jesus said, I'm sending my spirit. Just as much as he physically was with his disciples, his spirit is with us. So the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the invis- invisible presence of God in the world. And here's what happens. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is drawing us. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse number 44, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It takes divine intervention because on our own, we don't move toward God. (laughs) You got to listen fast, y'all, because I got some stuff to cover. I told you that. On our own, we don't pursue God. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. We do not gravitate naturally toward God. In fact, if you were in the study in the book of Romans earlier this year, the book of Romans chapter number 3 says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. That's a pivotal statement. No one naturally goes after God. We make statements like, I found the Lord. Well, the problem is God was never lost. He didn't find God. But hopefully somewhere along life's journey, he found you. And when he, when he spoke to you, and I've said this often, really the essence of the gospel is when you can insert your name into John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. If you've been around church at all, you might not be able to quote it, but you are familiar at least with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you're able to take that whosoever out of John 3.16 or that world rather out of John 3.16 and insert your name there and realize that Jesus died on the cross for you, everything he endured, all the mockery, all the shame, all the rejection, the crucifixion, every ounce of pain that Jesus endured, he did on your behalf. If you were the only human being that ever lived and needed redemption, he would have died for you. And so the essence of the gospel is when we recognize that John 3.16 is not just some blanket statement for the cosmos of this world, but rather for the fact that God personally gave the life of his only begotten son on your behalf. Whatever and wherever that moment happened for you, here's what else happened that you couldn't see. God's spirit came to live inside of you and he regenerated you. Now, you know what that means, whether you know you know what that means or not. Regenerated means to regene. Regenerated. <laughs> That's how all you Washington County folks knew that already because you mispronounced it. Well, uh, washing of regeneration. 
I'm just kidding. People in Washington County can't read. Here we go. But <laughs> I'm just joking. Chill out. Chill out. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> I'm sick. You can't get mad at me today. But the point is, what is the point? Oh, yeah. The point is, when we trusted in Christ, the Bible teaches us. And this is a, this is a big concept we're trying to reduce down into simple terms. But, but, but God's Spirit gave us a new nature. God's Spirit brought our spirit to life. We are described in our, in our pre-converted state, before we became Christians, before we got saved, we're described in the Bible as being dead in our sins. That, that we just, we, 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 there's this aspect of who we are that's empty until we meet Christ. There's an emptiness, a hollowness, a hole inside of our humanity where, where God's spirit is supposed to dwell, but it's until we come to that point in time, wherever it is, however we got there, that we put our faith in Christ, that God's spirit comes to live inside of us, and we are made whole. That doesn't mean that we're, that we're utterly complete, that we're not still a work in progress. We absolutely are, as Christians, still a work in progress, but it does mean we have now been brought to life by the spirit of God, and we have the appetite, and we have the ability to walk in his spirit and walk Walk in his presence and exemplify the, the, the attitude and the nature of the Spirit of God himself. The evidence, the fruit of the Spirit, we looked at this last Sunday, the evidence or the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I wasn't just trying to get you to say it out loud. I actually forgot halfway through it. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So we understand that, that the attitudes of the Spirit, the, the nature of the Spirit should be alive in us, and we should be manifesting the nature of God to the world around us, right? So according to the Bible, the, there is a definitive change that takes place in a person's heart when that person receives Christ as Savior. In fact, there should be such an indelible change that Jesus said, now, now hear this, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Now that doesn't mean that God has commissioned you as a fruit inspector, and that your job is to now go around and make sure every other Christian is actually who they claim to be. You might be on the wrong side if that's your attitude. But Jesus did say that, that there should be such a significant change in people's hearts that from that moment forward, there is a difference in them. One of the most important parables that, that Jesus ever spoke. And the reason why I say it is one of the most important, I could possibly go so far as to say it is the most important parable that Jesus ever spoke because he himself said, if you don't understand this parable, how can you understand all the other parables? So I would say it is at least near the top of the list of most important parables that Jesus ever taught. But, but listen to what he says. It, it's incredibly profound because there's this prognosis of the human condition, and it, and it gives us answers as to why some people receive the gospel and some people reject it. That's kind of an interesting thought process, isn't it? And so in one simple parable, a parable has been described as, as a window that looks into the truth. So, so Christ gives us parables. We would call them in our modern vernacular illustrations. He, tells, he told stories that conveyed an overarching truth. And so in this story, this parable, Matthew chapter 13, verse number three, it says, then he spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth and 
they immediately sprung up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Now watch this. There, there's, a, there's an epidemic of sorts, again, that Jesus articulates here. And that is, why do some people respond to the gospel and others don't? Right? Why do some people respond to the gospel and others don't? Now, this could be a whole sermon in, in and of itself, but it won't be today. <laughs> but, but Jesus explained it this way. The seed is the gospel. That's very clear. The Bible says in the book of First Peter that we were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. That's the, that's the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? What is the gospel? The gospel is the free gift of God given to us through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the message of the gospel. Jesus died in our place. He became the propitiation for our sins. And so, so the seed, very simply put, is the gospel. That's easy, right? The soil is the heart of man. Again, this stuff's easy if you start to just look at it, break it down. The soil is the heart of man. So sometimes when a person hears the gospel, Jesus said it's like a sower casting seed onto a field, but some of that seed will fall by the wayside. Well, the wayside is the part of a field back in the day before we had big tractors and combines and all that stuff where the, the, the farmer uh, would, would walk. The wayside was the outside part of the field where the farmer would walk. And as you can imagine, just as any trail does, that part of the field would get hard and compacted by heavy traffic. And so Jesus compared some people's hearts to those who have a very hard heart, that the gospel never breaks through because they're too stubborn and too self-willed and perhaps too rebellious in some cases to even listen. And, 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 and before we get too judgy of that type of person, understand that oftentimes they got it honestly. Sometimes the, most, the, most, the, 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 the people with the thickest skin and the, and the toughest disposition, they've done that as a defense mechanism because they've been hurt so many times. They had to build walls high. Now they can't let anybody in because they fear if they let someone in, they'll get hurt again. And, and unfortunately, oftentimes, those feelings even get projected toward God, and, and, we, and certain people have a hard time trusting a loving, merciful God because they've done that before with people and were let down. And so he said, some people, when the gospel seed is sown, it falls by the wayside. It falls on a, a, very, a very arduous ground where they just, they just can't seem to hear it. And then he said, some people, they're like, they're like, when a sower sows seed and it falls on that part of the field that hasn't been well plowed, there's still a lot of rock and, 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 and clods of dirt there. And he said, what happens oftentimes is they will receive it real fast and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I want in. Heaven, you bet. Well, how do I get my ticket punched? Right? I get a, I get a get out of hell free card, give it to me. I'll add that to everything else. Right? He said, sometimes they receive it very quickly without giving it any thought. Unfortunately, certain preachers and churches have been bad at, at trying to pull a conversion out of people, getting people to pray mass prayers when they don't really understand what they're praying. Y'all hearing me? 
I'm not saying you couldn't have gotten saved in that scenario. You absolutely could have, but it's not because you repeated somebody's prayer. It's because from your own heart you recognized your need and you called on Christ yourself, not because you said something somebody told you to say. He said some people's heart is like ground that's grown over with thorns, and thorns, of course, are uh, a type in the Bible of the curse that when, when, when mankind sinned and, and fell away from his relationship with God himself, the ground from that point forward began growing weeds and thorns and briars. And he said sometimes people's hearts are similar to that, that they've gotten so entangled in the things of the world that they love their, their money, they love their possession, they love their notoriety, they love their pleasure so much that they would do anything but change. Some people would rather die without Christ than let their hearts turn to Christ if turning to Christ means something's going to change. Now, hear me very well right here. Nobody gets saved by changing their life. You don't get saved by turning over a new leaf and decide to be a better boy or a better little girl. You can change and you can amend your ways. That doesn't mean you were born again. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this, that the Spirit of God will make a change in you, and some people realize it. Some people know that if they trust in Jesus and get saved, something's going to change on the inside. And because they're not willing to give up any aspect of their, of their life of pleasure or whatever it might be, he said that sometimes that seed of the gospel falls into, into thorns and briars and thickets, and, and when they feel the Spirit of God compelling them and moving them toward a decision, they, they, they make the choice to allow those other things to smother out the Word, and then there's never any real fruit. But then he said that there, there, there are those who the seed falls on good ground. And when that happens, he said it yields a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30. He said not everybody's going to produce the same magnitude or, or amount, but everybody who has received the gospel will be changed. There will be something in you that's different from that moment. That doesn't mean any of us ever reach perfection in this life. In fact, if a person says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. We're all sinners, we're all still broken, we're all still a work in progress, but if you have genuinely trusted in Christ, something has changed in your heart. And if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away, and behold, all things are become new. Now, now hear me out. There's an epidemic of sorts that's plagued the church since its inception. And we're going to scrutinize this in, in progressively greater detail throughout this study but let me begin with this simple diagnosis. You ready? I'm not sure you're ready. Are you all ready? It's a very simple diagnosis, and I'm not going to go any further because I've got to cut this thing off or we're, we're going to be in the, in the weeds. So let me just say a couple very simple things to you. First of all, first of all uh, uh, there are unsaved people in every church. Let me say that again. <laughs> there are unsaved people, unconverted people, in every church. You say, no, not this one. Yeah, especially this one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just a fact. In Matthew chapter 13, we just, we, just, we just examined very, very briefly the parable of the sower. Jesus also gave another parable that was related to that parable, and, and you're probably familiar with it. It's called the parable of the tares among the wheat. Remember that one? Tares are essentially weeds, not the good kind, you freaking hippies. 
but <laughs> y'all got to loosen up this morning, man. Do, do something, dude. Loosen up, man. But uh, tares are, are weeds that grow. <laughs> it was a joke, people. I'm serious. Look, y'all have to, you got to lighten up with me. All right, I can't deal with that. Uh, but Jesus said there will always be tares that grow up among a, a, a good harvest. You'll have uh, weeds that grow in any garden. And, and the difference is, most, most, most of the time, weeds are very easy to identify, but, but the unique thing about a tear, specifically, is that a tear looks exactly like wheat, which is what Jesus was using as, as an analogy of a believer, that, that as a believer, you'll bring forth a harvest, right? So he said, he said tares will always grow among the, the wheat. Every garden will grow weeds at some point, no matter, no matter how careful you are. He said, but, but you have to understand that, that one thing that, that's important to that parable is that you can't distinguish the difference between a tear and wheat. Did you know that? Tares look exactly like wheat until harvest time. And so, so the point of that parable was to explain to us that among every group of believers, within every congregation of people, within every gathering of God's people, there will always be those who just haven't got it for whatever reason. And he said, and so the disciples, of course, they they thought the way we think, right? Well, we need to get them out, don't we? We need to deal with them. They said, we should go, we should go start pulling these weeds, shouldn't we, Lord? He said, no, leave them alone. Let them be. Because if you, if you go start, again, trying to be a fruit inspector and determine who got it and who didn't get it, he said, when you do that, you're going to do damage to the harvest itself. So leave them be. Let them be until harvest time because, because there will come a day when all of that is revealed. So again, hear me very carefully. There are unsaved people in every church, people who claim to know God, but have never in fact had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, now here's the tricky part. They operate pretentiously and, and are often the most judgmental and self-righteous of all. Out of all the crowd of Christian people, Let's pretend we're in another church. You guys are getting nervous thinking I'm pointing people out here. I'm not. I'm not. I will call names, though, if you, if you make me mad. <laughs> but, but here's the reality. This, this group, this enigma, if you will, is often the most hyper-spiritual, sarcastic quotation marks. They're often the most hyper-spiritual the most legalistic, the most judgmental of all. Because you remember what we said earlier? Why would you be worried about a little fleck of sawdust in someone else's eye when you have this glaring inconsistency in your own life? Why? Well, because the answer is, from a psychoanalytical perspective, the reason being is because we have to take the attention away from us. It's sleight of hand. And the easiest way to do that is to consistently point out the faults in everybody else. Yeah. Now you've met them. You don't want to admit it because you don't want to feel judgy yourself, and it's good. Don't do that. <laughs> but the reality is, we've all had our encounters with these types of people that they're consistently gossiping, consistently, we're going to look at 
causing division. Paul gets real personal in chapter 3, and I'm going to too. He even calls names. I'm not going that far. But Paul gets real personal in chapter 3. And, and so he says, look, here's how you identify this. You don't need to call them out. It's not your job to tell them what they need to get right. But you can identify them for yourself. He said the way that we, 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 we identify this pretension, this hypocrisy, this type of individual is, is realize that they're operating, they're consistently causing division. They're consistently envious of other people. They're always causing strife. And he says, do you really think that, that that's the Holy Spirit? Do you really think that's the Spirit of God inspiring them to do that? We have to recognize this, folks. I know it's a sobering truth, but we have to recognize that not everybody who claims to know Christ is indeed a born-again believer in Christ. Amen. I can claim to be six foot four and 250. That don't mean it's reality. Y'all hearing me? They operate, they're often the most judgmental, critical people of the crowd. Now listen to this. These verses I'm about to read to you rocked my world 23 years ago. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? You hear the self-righteous undertone? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works? Everything I did was so wonderful, Lord. Didn't you see? I was keeping record. Surely you were too. I did so many wonderful things. I, I gave. I sacrificed. I did so much. Jesus said, the problem is, I never knew you. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And we could go one step further and say it's not even so much about who you know, it's who knows you. Jesus said, I never knew you. You used my name to benefit yourself. You used my name to promote yourself. You used my name. You used my platform for your own personal vendetta. And yet I never knew you. You never came to me and put your faith in me as Savior. I'm telling you straight up, there are people who claim to know Christ that wouldn't know God if he walked in wearing a name tag. Jesus said, not everyone who claims to know me really does know me. You say, well, then how can any of us know us? It's so simple. That's why people miss it. It's not your religious performance. It's not your self-righteous act. It's about coming to a point of repentance where you realize with a contrite spirit that you're lost and you're broken and you're empty and you can't attain the glories of God's beautiful heaven without the grace of God poured out in the cross of Jesus Christ. We all have to come to that moment. And unless you do, it doesn't matter how well you perform. It doesn't matter how many tally marks you have on your credit. It's about knowing Christ and Christ knowing you and coming to him in faith. There are unsaved people in every church. Let me give you this and I'm done. There are saved people in every church who do not operate accordingly. 
You remember the title of this series, Church is Messy. Church is Messy. And because of the fact that there are people who have the potential, have the potential to live a spirit-filled life, have the potential to be greatly used of God, have the potential to exercise their own spiritual gift and function as a, as, as, as a major part of the body of Jesus Christ, there are people sitting here this morning that you know Christ, you've been born again, you've been saved, you know all of this to be true, but you're not performing to the level of your capability as a believer in Jesus Christ. That was the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice this with me, and we're done, mostly. <clears throat> he said, I, brethren, could not speak to you. Notice Paul said, listen, I'm, I'm talking to you as brothers, as believers. Ladies, that involves you too. I speak to you as brothers, as sisters in Christ, but I could not speak to you as to spiritual people. I had to speak to you as carnal, I had to speak to you on a, on, on a strictly human level, even as to babes in Christ. Now notice verse 2, he said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Now, you notice that last statement. He said, you are, you're behaving, you're operating the way that you have always operated. You have the capacity. You have the, the potential. You have the, you have the power within you to transcend the limitations of this life, to go beyond what you could ever be on your own. God has given you his spirit. He has endowed you with, with the power of his very presence, and you have the ability to go beyond the natural realm. You have the power to pray. You have the power to be filled with the Spirit. You have the power to seek the wisdom of God. You have the power to display the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. He said, you are the light of the world. Why would you hide that light and not let the world see all the glory and the beauty of God's mercy in you? We are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone. We are the evidence of God's mercy, so let's act like it. We are the trophies of his grace. Let's be different. Let's be different. Let's stop operating in strife, always bickering with somebody, holding on to stuff, bearing a grudge. How, listen, how as a Christian can I hate another human being and be bitter and envious and spiteful when I recognize that I've received mercy and grace that I did not deserve in a thousand lifetimes? How is it that I can withhold forgiveness? You say you have no idea what they've done to me. Well, by making that statement... You have no idea what mercy is really about. Because you forgiving someone else is not about that person. It's about you. Letting go. And letting God heal your heart. There are people in every church community that genuinely know Christ. They just don't act like it. 
Can a believer behave as an unbeliever? Absolutely. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because the Bible says so, but I've also tested that theory. <laughs> I was the guinea pig. And I understand that as a Christian, I, listen, we're capable of heinous crimes. <laughs> but I'll give you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's who I am. That's what I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. But listen to this. His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You know what Paul said? He said, I'm absolutely saved by the grace of God alone. It's not me. It's the grace of God in me. But he said, I just made a decision that I wasn't going to become a receptacle of God's grace. I want to reciprocate the grace of God and let people experience his grace in me. Christ has forgiven me so much, I have no choice but to give forgiveness to people. He's given me so much grace, I have no choice but to let his grace flow through me. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never come to that point in your life where you genuinely trusted in Jesus as your Savior. You can do that where you sit. We're going to stand in a moment. You can do it stand on your feet because it's not about me hearing you or seeing you. It's about you from your heart calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and realizing that he is your only hope, my only hope. He's the only hope of this lost and dying world. You can call on him. And then as believers, listen, I'm calling us to a higher purpose. We have to transcend all of the toxicity of this world, the society that we live in, we have to be different. We have to exemplify the kindness, the goodness of God. We have to exemplify the mercy of God. We have to let people experience the grace of God. That's what we're called to do. Let's all stand together this morning. Father, in Jesus' name.